Welcome to another episode of Whiteness in America. This is episode number five, and we're affectionately calling this episode A New Beginning because I feel like that's what we are doing all the time. My name is Tom Bell. I am your co-host, that's right, co-host for the Whiteness in America podcast. We've had lots of changes in the last time. Since the last time you heard our voice or my voice uh, in October, um, I started off on really getting into my dissertation and doing that work, and then needed to put the podcast on hiatus for a little bit to focus on finishing, and I finally finished. And in that time, I did some reflecting on what it would take to um, to really make this podcast land, and I always felt like having someone with me doing this work alongside of me would be best. And so I reached out to a friend of mine, I think we can call each other friends now, I mean, at least we're friends on Facebook, Dr. Erica Britt, uh, who will be joining me as the co-host, co-contributor to this podcast, Whiteness in America. I'm really excited. So, so today we're going to spend a little time introducing ourselves and kind of interviewing each other, getting a feel for one another. Uh, we're going to briefly talk about uh, Juneteenth and the comments Mitch McConnell made yesterday about reparations. There's House Bill 40 and, and kind of that piece. Uh, but really, this is an opportunity for us to reintroduce ourselves to you all to, and, and kind of get a feel for what the flavor of the podcast is going to be. And then we'll do a little tease at the end for what uh, you should see next week or two weeks from now when we drop our, our, our sixth episode. So without further ado, I'd like to introduce my colleague, my friend, my co-host, Dr. Erica Britt. Erica, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for joining me, Erica. I'm excited to have you here. Thanks for welcome. having me. I appreciate you. I think this is exciting. I'm nervous because I've never done a podcast before, but I think I'm in, I'm in good hands. Ah, uh, yeah, right. <laughs> I've listened to you on the web. Um, so I'm glad to be here. This is going to be a fun collaboration, and I think we're going to have some cool, really in-depth conversations. I think so. And yeah. at the very least, this is the first time that I've ever had a conversation where I'm sitting in the same room with somebody. <laughs> you know, generally, yeah. we do it over like a video chat of some sorts, and so this is a different energy. Uh, you got to see me see I as do, a real I person. See, yeah, yeah, you're a real human. <laughs> we're interacting, which is, I think, better, better, better listening. I think quality mm-hmm. radio. So yeah. I'm excited about that. So, Excellent. Um, well, yeah, thanks for coming. So uh, let's get started. Uh, why, why are you here? Why did you decide to do this? And tell, tell everyone a little bit about yourself. So by profession, I'm a sociolinguist I'm studying African-American English. Got my PhD in 2011 from the University of Illinois, Urbana-Champaign. Um, and I guess my whole life, I was drawn to linguistics around language and race. So as an African-American woman growing up in predominantly white neighborhoods, I was very intensely aware of race from a very early age, and in particular how it affected my language Mm -hmm. and how this language marked my identity. So, you know, growing up in a predominantly white suburb of Fort Lauderdale, they talked very differently than my cousins in a predominantly black neighborhood of Miami. And when I would go home to see my family, they would very clearly let me know that I was talking white. And that became an identity issue for me. So black, white, language, all those things were merged together for me. So yeah, um, for me, language is um, closely connected to race and identity. And so all the stuff that I do as a linguist, all the stuff that I do in my classes about language and identity, but also language and inequality, because linguistic discrimination is very real. Um, And for me, part of my life mission is to recover those things that I lost through my education process. So I lost access to my native dialect. My brother speaks a totally different dialect than I do. My family speaks a totally different dialect than I do because of how our um, you know, upbringing sent us on different pathways. So as an educator now, my job at the university, I'm teaching classes in linguistics, but I'm also training teachers how not to screw up their kids' 
language and identity. And so that's that's kind of the work that I, the main work that I do. Um, and then I'm doing research now on Flint, collecting oral histories. So I really care about people's stories and want to know what their stories are, how your stories shape place and who you are. So that's kind of a rough yeah. <laughs> overview of who I am. One of the things that I always, uh, that really struck me in a talk that you gave that I attended last year with some students, which you came in while you were on sabbatical, which is pretty awesome that you did that. Uh, the work was, never ends, right? Right, yeah. Was this, <laughs> you know, we always talk about in higher ed or in education or in equity and justice work, centering the minoritized population, right? Or in this case, centering folks of color. And what you said was really amazing. What would happen if the people in charge of how we spoke, the ones that could, I, that could determine what proper language was, mm-hmm. looked like me, mm-hmm. in this case you, and spoke like they could, mm-hmm. what would that do about knowledge and who could possess knowledge and sound intelligent and sound all these things that we put labels on? And I think that that struck the students in the audience. Mm-hmm. And it was really something for me that when I go out and talk or when I, th- when I was thinking about writing a dissertation, what does that look like when you challenge the construct mm-hmm. of whiteness? Because that's exactly what you're right. doing. Yeah, It's at its core. And um, it's something we can't even imagine because for me, this is how deep white supremacy is. Something as simple as language that we don't take to be raced, we don't take it to be an in indicator of power and inequality, is absolutely that. So here I am, a scholar of black language, and every publication I have is written in standardized English. And mm. I'm advocating for the rights of my people in a dialect that is not my own. Well, it's mine and because I've... I've adopted it through my process of growing up, but it's not culturally the language of my people. Um, If you were to listen to my father talk, who was the most intelligent and educated person I ever met, although he had an associate's degree and, you know, didn't have advanced education, his language would be very different. But he could talk up a storm about every issue in the world. He was very intelligent, very, very um, opinionated about the world, but his voice wouldn't matter in the academy. You know, he wouldn't count as someone who's a scholar, but he's one of those scholars that we all know from the community at the (laughs) barbershop. You sit in a barbershop and you hear our people talk, they're going to be talking in our language and they're going to be talking something up about the world. And they have a really strong critique and a very strong theory about the world. So you're right. There's, I think there's something um, that's for students to hear that they're like, it just doesn't cross our mind that even down to language, it's... um, it's an indicator of this layer of, for me, colonization um, yeah. that we've endured, um, and now we're just awakening to it. And I'm following a lot of uh, black writers, black um, bloggers, so Kinfolk Collective, a um, couple of other groups who are very adamant about when they blog, they blog in their in, the, in our language, <laughs> unfiltered. They don't care who's going to say what they're going to say, and and they protect that space as a space for our people to talk the way we want to talk. You know, it's interesting you bring that up too. I was watching, uh, watching, watching a Twitter discussion, <laughs> and uh, it was a, it was a, a young scholar, and I use the term young not as an age to derivative, but more of a conversation of mm-hmm. where the person is at in their journey as an act, as, a, as an activist scholar, and they were talking about whether or not to capitalize the word white, mm. right? So, um, and they were citing a pretty well-renowned um, black scholar that has been doing work for a long time and saying that yeah you probably should mm-hmm. and I and in my work I don't mm-hmm. so I, I capitalize the B in black A in African American A in Asian L in Latinx um, but I don't capitalize white and I do it intentionally mm-hmm. because white doesn't exist right we, we've made mm-hmm. it as this thing mm-hmm. and so in order to remove the power from it in the context of writing 
I did that. But it was really fascinating to watch this discussion, and it made me think about folks that have had to probably don't have the privilege that I have, mm. that have had to play the game in mm-hmm. order to get into that space, right. whereas, you know, coming years behind them, I don't one, because of being a white man, like mm-hmm. I don't have to do that. Mm. But also because there's been other people that have blazed this trail ahead of me that I can now capitalize on this. And so right. that's whiteness in a context too, right? Like <laughs> right. we talk about access and space and stuff like that, but it, it reminds me of your kind of conversation of who who's identified in the way that we use language or write language that mm-hmm. is proper or appropriate in right. both academic writing and formal everyday speech. That's right. Yeah. That's right. And it's something that we've all internalized. So these are even debates that I'm having within my own community, talking to educated people, African Americans, who um, for them, yeah, no, standardized English is the above, end all and be all of how you're supposed to write. And it's all about intelligence. So why would you write in black language? And even for them, because um, they've gone through the system, right? And they've right. gone through the struggle of, this is what I got to do to survive. I think the new generation coming up after them is saying, okay, we saw you do that, and we saw that you're still being discriminated against. We see that there's still a gap. Um, and so they're shifting away from that, and they're, they're, they're resisting regardless of what the kickback is going to be because they're like, listen, the payoff that you're telling me of right. <laughs> is not going to be worth it. So I'm going to write in black language. I'm not going to code switch never code switching again. I've seen young, young black uh, Twitter people and um, bloggers say that. And they don't have privilege, the certain kind of privilege that you might have, right. but they're willing to risk it yeah. because they know that it's not worth it <laughs> yeah. to do all that stuff. So, yeah. yeah. Well, I'm excited that you're here. I'm excited that you'll, you'll bring a definitely a different dynamic than I bring. But it also, I think, um, just having someone else to talk to about this stuff on a regular basis that's consistent. We'll be so we're not talking to the voices in our head, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. That's, that's it good. It helps. Yeah. Right. Well, should we jump into some kind of back and forth interview stuff? Okay. Yeah. yeah. So I think this is our time to kind of get to know each other. Yeah, right? Right? And like, you know, I got to know who you are because if we're going to partner on this, I got to know. I'm a random white guy. That, right. I just, I work here, like all the other white guys that work here. I got to find out what kind of white guy you are, because you know I need to know. Okay, are are you the worst? Oh God, I have to run away. Well, I got to know, like, okay, are you an was an ally, an accomplice? Are you like you know trying to figure out how you're gonna use whiteness for the cause? So that's why that's how my questions are kind of yeah organized. I like that. I like that. Um, I'm gonna use this, by the way, in the (laughs) so. so what kind of white guy am I? Uh, well, my story is a little interesting. Um, I guess it's interesting to me mm-hmm. uh, in that I think my realization to my understanding of my own whiteness came when I was 20. Okay. Uh, I had a mentor who, um, I did the intercultural development inventory. Mm-hmm. Uh, are you familiar with that? It's hey. like a, a kind of a, are you, do you have some understanding of intercultural uh, intercultural relations and intercultural identity um, and uh, when I did that that gives you your kind of perceived understanding of yourself and your actual mm. like where you are with your ability to mm-hmm. not be a racist asshole um, and my perceived understanding of self was like great like most white people and my actual not abil- my ability to not be a racist asshole was not as good <sighs> And my mentor at the time was like, hey, you've got some work to do. And I was like, you know, what do you mean I have work to do? I'm, I'm out here advocating. I'm an ally. You know, I'm self-proclaiming myself as an ally. And she's like, that's, that's the problem. Like, you're self-proclaiming. You're putting these things up there. And, um, you know, you may have friends that think that you're 
supportive, but you're really not mm-hmm. in it. And so that was my beginning of my journey. And, and for me, it's been this wave of kind of figuring out my own identity as a white person and how that has provided affluence and, and, and access and all these sorts of things. But also at the same time, um, where do I fit in this dialogue? Mm-hmm. Because you know, there's a lot of conversation about particularly, you know, I, I chose my career path is, is in higher education and education and I focus on race and racism. Mm-hmm. Is there space for me not to take up in this conversation, right? right? And so my work really is with white folks, and I think that that's where I can do my most um, important labor Mm -hmm. is to try to um, work through that decolonization. Because I come from a perspective that we all have been decolonized. Mm -hmm. And white folks as colonizers have been colonized to be colonizers, right, and kind of perpetuate that. Um, Not that I'd like to get, we get political on the podcast all the time. and you see that a lot with Trump, right? right. I think he has used that nature of, of uh, to continue the colonization of white folks, mm-hmm. and particularly white folks who have come from potentially some socioeconomic disadvantaged place and, mm-hmm. and can continue to try to leverage their power as white folks mm-hmm. in that space. And so I see my work in that, that realm a little bit, and um, but also as a, a support and... Mm-hmm. Uh, a friend and wherever I'm invited to be and know that I need to be invited to be uh, in space and so um, you know I think that that's important to mm-hmm. to understand your place in that and you know I think that that's kind of where I fit in this and so I mm-hmm. started this whole thing is because I, I just wanted to start engaging in it and thinking about it differently and I'm not a great writer mm-hmm. I'm also not a great s- talker uh, but I figured this was easier <laughs> <laughs> And it was more entertaining. Like you and your right. work, I really like to get to know people's stories and right. understand that I'm a, you know, I'm a, I'm a quantitative person at work. Mm-hmm. I'm a qualitative person in my research, and I like mixed methods as kind of the process. Mm-hmm. But getting to know people and getting to know the story and, and looking at whiteness from a perspective of if, if it's a person who's still every day enacting that whiteness in their, in their life, why and getting to understand that because I think we need to expose that more so we understand that we as being white folks but also the folks that have come through a journey of trying to regularly disrupt it Mm -hmm. what led them there and how did they get that and and so is it possible to do that yeah yeah. and stories are good places for us to just talk smack and kind of cut through the BS because I think um, I, I'm glad to hear you say that you encountered that mentor because um, a lot of my white allies, and I put that in scare quotes, um, will not have met that mentor that says, you've got work to do. Yeah. And then because they don't do that extra step of work, they cause incredible harm in the name of justice or in the name of being an ally. Um, and you mentioned colonization a lot. And I, so I, I did a survey of friends asking them, what, what questions can I ask Tom for today? And so oh, one of the questions that came up is, Maybe not framing it, and, and this is I brought from Dr. P. Actually, she um, she said. By the way, we have someone in the studio yes. audience with us today. Dr. <laughs> Joyce Peer is here. She may be a guest potentially on the next episode. We'll see if we can convince her as we get through this discussion today. You so, hear any noises in the background? You're right. Probably her. <laughs> So Dr. P is in the room, both in the questions that I'm asking and also literally she's in the room. Um, And one of the questions that she got me thinking of was this idea of, so we're all colonized, as you said, Mm -hmm. right? Like there's something about the way that our system trains us into thinking a certain way. I want to take it a step further and say we're not just colonized, but we're trained to be white supremacists. Yes. Right? And that in every single way, like even for me, 
as a person in academia, I'm trained to believe that there's a certain way of speaking, a certain way of being that is good. And all those things tend to line up with white, middle-class, upper-middle-class culture. So the question I have for you is, when did you first discover that you were an agent of white supremacy? And how do you deal with that? It was around that same time. Um, and but I don't think I really actualized it. So I realized it, and then I actualized it in my understanding probably a few months later mm. as I was going through this. I was a multicultural assistant, mm-hmm. and that's how this whole thing started. Um, I was hired as a multicultural assistant uh, to work and support students that were living on campus in their diversity mm. uh, programming. That right. was my job, right? And so it was this all-encompassing diversity thing. Mm-hmm. And it was through some of that and then going to Encore uh, later that year where I kind of was like, oh, I'm definitely an actor in all of this. And I started to own it more. So when my mentor was like, you need to you need to own this, you need to do some of your self-work, it took me time to see where it was manifesting, mm-hmm. where I was using it more mm-hmm. and where it was coming out. Because I think for folks in general, or white people all in this, we like to push everything out. So what mm-hmm. I found in my research is we push everything away from us. I don't want to own the responsibility. You see, we'll talk about it later yeah. with the Mitch McConnell statement, right. but like, it happened a long time ago. I wasn't a part of it. I didn't own slaves, right? It's that kind of mentality. And so until you have a concrete example where it comes up in your face where you did something mm-hmm. dumb and stupid, mm-hmm. you're not going to see that because the system is so far detached from who you are. Right. Um, because we've been ingrained as individuals. The okay. system has no bearing on us. We're individuals. Exactly. We have individual freedom. We have, like, and that's the colonization. Oh, yeah. the indiv- individualization has been created in, the, in, in, in this concept of, as white supremacy. And, mm. and we've been indoctrinated, colonized, to believe that we have the ability to transcend mm-hmm. class, transcend right. race. You see it in the way... Um, even President Obama spoke. Like mm-hmm. I think I would say he was an actor of white supremacy That's in right. that sense, right? Some of his language, but some of it might have been survival, political survival exactly. for him, right? So I can't right. blame him for that. Right. But at the same time, like he was upholding certain aspects right. of language. That's an interesting point, though, that you make. That for us, you know, there's there's different camps, and I've talked to my elders, I've talked to people in the community about how do we move in a society where everything is clearly designed against you, and shouldn't we resist it? But the survival mechanism is, no, you go with the system, you embed yourself in the system, and you make change from within. But in a lot of ways, you know, again, my generation and younger, especially millennials, are seeing that, well, no, I'm becoming an Asian of white supremacy. You know, Obama becoming the head, you know, we call him deporter-in-chief. Right. You know, we call him drone operator-in-chief because now he's the head of a system that is an international, imperial, white yeah. supremacist machine. And so we... Th- thank him for his struggle, and we recognize his struggle, we recognize that our elders had to struggle, they had to survive, no one wants them to die and, and you know, under the circumstances under which they grew up, they had to do what they had to do, right. but then for that to be sold back to us now as thriving, yeah. <laughs> we're like, no, we don't think that's, that's it, I mean, that's kind of how I'm, what's happening to me lately. Right, and, and like, I guess that's my question for you, and we'll start there for you, mm-hmm. is, obviously, you probably have more experience running into whiteness than I do. Because mm. <laughs> for me, it's, I, mean, I mean, I ran into it, but I don't see it. I didn't see it for a long time, right? right? But where, when did you start to realize you were an actor of it? 
Um, because I think that's interesting for folks of color to kind of co- wrestle with too, is yeah. when you start to realize you're part of that machine as well. Right. So it first actually did hit me, and this idea of connecting it to language was, I first discovered African American English as an undergrad, and uh-huh. I wrote this really great paper about, oh, we need to fight for the rights of African American English, we need to do this, blah, 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 blah. And the teacher gave me an A in the paper, but at the bottom of it they said, and you wrote this brilliantly in standard English. Isn't that ironic? And I was like, oh, God, you know, I had to fall out on that because I just didn't, <laughs> it didn't hit me yeah. how entrenched this education that I had was. And I remember it being so difficult because for me as a kid coming when I moved into the white suburbs, my teachers didn't respond well to my writing. They didn't respond well to my speaking. I had to do a lot of shifting to fit in. And I remember very specifically getting this drunken white writing manual and almost copying word for word how to write. And from that moment, my teachers always said, she's a brilliant writer, she's a great writer, she's awesome, all the accolades came after I learned how to write white, right? <laughs> right? But And it didn't hit me that there's a disconnect between that and my political stance until that teacher wrote that note on the paper. Yeah. And then I was just like, oh, okay. It was the first kind of wake up call. It didn't necessarily transform into any political or any kind of you know, social transformation for me. That didn't come until after I actually got my PhD and then came here on the tenure track. Yeah. Um, that I realized that, okay, I had done everything according to the rules, but it wasn't working out. So as an agent of white supremacy, now that I'm a faculty member and I'm grading students' papers, and I'm looking at what kind of writing are they giving me? And how am I responding to their writing? What kind of language are they bringing into the room? What kind of thinking are they bringing? I'm having to now balance that, um, that set of decisions that they're gonna have to make. How do I nurture and help you protect your home language in your writing? Mm-hmm. But also recognizing that white supremacy is very real and if you take that language into this public sphere, they're gonna respond to you in a certain way. And I have to make myself not a gatekeeper for them, but actually let them know what decision-making they're going to do. Right. Like, what kind of choices are you going to make in your writing? You know, and if it's a political stance that you're taking, that you're going to preserve your language, I'm making them aware of that as a real viable option, but also mentoring them into the realities. Okay, you might not get this job in corporate America, but now let's figure out how do you create your space outside of corporate America so you can preserve your language and culture. Right. Um, and that hit me as a faculty member, knowing that, yeah, I'm a gatekeeper. Right, yeah. and as students ask me for recommendation letters, um, I remember when I was a grad student trying to go to grad. Uh, I did my first master's in North Carolina, trying to go to grad school for my PhD, and I asked my faculty for letters, and two of them were like, "No, we don't think you're good enough to go to a PhD program. You need to stick around another year," and they were the ultimate gatekeeper. Yeah. Like they decided I was not viable, but the very school they told me I was not viable to get into, I got admitted to within a week of putting the application in. Oh, wow. Right? Yeah. And actually with a phone call and a message from my current dissertation advisor saying, we want this student. And so it made me think, okay, that's another kind of gatekeeping <laughs> that yeah. happens. And I'm in that institutional role where I could become a gatekeeper. I could work to mentor students how to navigate it or even be visionaries to create something totally different than the system that we're in. Yeah. And so it's, it's been a long journey to realizing, yeah, I play a big role. <laughs> I play a big role. And I'm in the English department. Yeah. It's like one of the whitest departments in the university, you know, in the university environment right. is the English department yeah. and the language and the literature that we read and the things that we talk about, they're coming from the canon, this white right. British American canon, yeah. you know, and so here I am, this plop right in the middle of it. <laughs> well, I told you about that, the story that a woman shared. I was doing a professional development a few weeks ago at a university, a different school, mm-hmm. and she said, uh, she was an African American woman and said, you know, 
when she talks about black literature, African-American literature, mm-hmm. African-American culture, black culture, in the context of her academic pursuits as, a, as an English professor, mm-hmm. she instantly has credibility, she's instantly believed, mm-hmm. and she is a knowledgeable scholar. Mm-hmm. When she talks about Shakespeare, right. she's questioned, mm-hmm. right? And mm-hmm. so it's this, it's fascinating what right. we do, um, and, and you know, what we do, and I'm pointing at myself when I say <laughs> that, uh, to, to who can right. have certain knowledge on certain things, and yeah. Exactly, yeah, exactly. That's fascinating stuff. Yeah. Um, so, a, a little different type of question for you, if mm-hmm. that's okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, because I think that this is always interesting for um, white folks to hear, mm-hmm. and so, I like to ask this question, sometimes it makes it on, sometimes it doesn't, but how is it, how important is it for someone who is white to challenge this on a regular basis? Oh my God, it's so important. It's so important. what does that important. look like? It's like, it's like using you. all of your, for me, it's like, it's like if you have a position of power as a white right. person, or if you are in control of any resources or any wealth, um, or anything, any kind of systems of power, to be able to constantly de- divest yourself of that power right. by handing that power off to the people who are in the communities that you're trying to elevate. What I keep discovering about white people that I work with is that they like to do justice on my behalf, which mm-hmm. means they want to hold the purse strings. They want to hold the final decision making. They want to control who gets to come in the room even um, without we do right and you were in one of those rooms where we saw this going down um we won't talk about that on this recording maybe later but uh it's so interesting how that person fought the person (laughs) that person fought so hard to maintain those reins to the point that when one other white person in the room exercised their power to say this must stop it was so threatening and that person got um lots of um blowback professional blowback um, but I, com- I commend that person for even putting themselves out there to say, no, this must stop, um, because it's exactly that kind of thing that's most threatening to the system as it exists. Yeah. And so when I, yeah, when you say, I'm like, yeah, that's what I need. I need white people to know that they are central and, and, and gathering their people. <laughs> get your people. Right, get your people. Get your people. Because I try to get your people and I can say the same thing that you would say and I'll be vilified and run out of the room. And that's the fundamental nature of this colonial white right. supremacy system that we live in. Um, so I need white I need white people who are invested in, in, in embedded in the system to dismantle the system. Yeah, I always find that awkward. Um, and I, sh- I, you know, I've talked about this. Mm. Is that you know, you you just said it. You could say the same thing that I could say mm-hmm. in a room full of white people, and the white folks would be like, oh, right there, there it happens again, right? And, and then I could go in and have the conversation, and the impact mm-hmm. will probably still land with some folks as they'll get defensive but mm-hmm. it may fall better with certain individuals and it, it always puzzles me I mean it doesn't really puzzle me as why it works that way but I find it very contradictory in mm-hmm. what we're trying to do and we're trying to dismantle the power dynamics but yet it takes you yeah it's just really awkward but you know, it's you a can, weird balance it's interesting right like we could we could stay in that space of okay I have to put a white guy in order for him to make any change right. Or we could we could actively together dismantle that dynamic. Right. And I was this is something I learned from Regina Laurie and Mona Monroe Eunice, um, two people who used to work at U of M Flint, about how do we strategize meetings. Yeah. And one of the things that they said was, you know, we're going to go and advocate for this particular issue, and I need you over there. Right. You're going to chime in after after the black woman or the white woman says this point. 
white men, okay, chime in, or ally, chime right. in, so that we can develop a dynamic in that space that stops it from being just the white guy speaking. You, as a white guy, could use your power then to just co-sign. Right. Right? And don't white-splain it, or right. explain it, right? <laughs> but, but, like, co-sign, oh, or give, give credit where it's due, That's right. and that support. That's but, right. Yeah, yeah, I think that that... And we in the meeting that you're referring to, and I think I think that that conversation is it will be a topic that we'll have to go into. Yes, <laughs> I think we saw that happen, mm. and that as you said, that person was just vilified, right. and then the community member that was mm-hmm. in the room um, was even more put off and, and right. disenfranchised. And that's right. Um, that's right. And so that's right. Uh, yeah, that was a horrible thing. Yeah, so. and that person who was vilified, one thing at least is when they're in positions of power, they know to do this work of co-signing and bringing people on board and letting and 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 it's because that person insisted that we bring those community members that's the only reason why they were in the room so even though the pushback was great it did something for me as a person of color to like not only that but to be in that room with those those women of color they were fire and they were demanding and saying things i didn't know i could demand in spaces they tried to silence me and one of them was like no we don't silence women of color oh yeah that was awesome i was like <laughs> i i got my whole life in that moment i said we can do this and they did it because they're elders and they're like we're we're gonna speak our piece so even though the ultimate you know goal of that particular mission you know got short-circuited by that power play it did something for me yeah to see those elders and it's because that person put themselves on the line to bring those people in the room that yeah. i got as a person of color to see that so there's <sighs> a lot of work to be done yeah <laughs> so yeah, yeah. So should I follow up with some questions for you then? I'm sure, thinking yeah. um this you is want to. yeah, I just think um <laughs> we've gone like we're very heavy in our professional life. And I want to take us back to childhood. Okay. Because, you know, oh, I think boy. like as we tell our story, you got to tell the truth. You got to tell the truth, man. You can't listen. <laughs> we got be we got built-in BS detectors. That's what that's one of our superpowers as black people. We <laughs> we learn how to okay, we said that, that's some BS coming our way. Um so, and again, this is a question I brought up from Dr. P. Um, how did white supremacy shape your childhood? Everywhere. So, Everywhere. like, one of the things that I think, you know, I was going to ask you is where do you see it? Because mm. I think the more that we name that it, it exists everywhere because mm-hmm. it is there. So I recently wrote this article, and it got denied because, you know, that's what happens when you write articles, mm-hmm. um, about uh, the experience of where whiteness exists for this particular person that I was following in a research study. And I started it with, look behind you and probably that was not the best way to start an article for the Harvard review um, it's there and as I said look behind you it's there it's standing there lurking behind where you're sitting in a meeting in your classroom in your environment whiteness is all around you white supremacy engages in all aspects of where you exist and so even though I didn't know it at the time I probably wasn't cognitively aware for me I looking back it was in all of the dynamics you have I have had these moments in my life but yeah as a young kid like um, it's weird. Uh, my I had imaginary friends, mm. uh, and this is an odd story to tell, and I'm not sure if it fits in the context, but um, my imaginary friends, one was named Pretend Friend, because I was real creative with <laughs> Very names. Very creative, yeah. Yeah, I can't believe I'm saying this. Uh, and he was a white guy. Mm-hmm. And then my other imaginary friend was Lou Whitaker, based on the baseball player from Detroit. Okay. He was imaginary in my mind, right? And he was black. And pretend friend was white and bad. Mm. And Lou Whitaker was my good friend, who was black. And so I thought that was really fascinating for me as I kind of reflect back on it. Like, what did that mean to me? And, like, how does that shape um, my own perspective of 
because typically you would think with kids growing up when you look at the doll test and all those other things skin color mm -hmm. is associated with good and bad right. and, and so f I had a flip on that and I'm not sure why that is right. I can't really get into that except for the fact that Lou Whitaker was my favorite baseball player and I thought he was awesome right. and this other dude pretend friend was not good mm. but he was a white little skinny guy in my mind and yeah I don't really I don't really know how that works out but anyway so I saw it play out like I you know my, my parents were divorced I, I grew up in a very white community um, and race was never really talked about mm. and it was never really a th it was it was not discussed because racial diversity wasn't present okay. and I find that is pretty consistent with um, most homogenous white communities mm -hmm. where only when there is racial diversity is race a factor even though race is always a factor always right a and so I started looking into that my own upbringing and, and really for me it was that constant normalization mm -hmm. of the white experience and I see that throughout my upbringing even through college where I went to Grand Valley State where mm -hmm. the lived experience was normalized of right. a white person yeah. and it wasn't until my latter half of my junior year where I started to kind of have some really intense moments of awakening, if you will. Yeah. It makes me think of our students. Mm -hmm. You know, we get a lot of students that come from these very homogenous communities, but what I see from them is the very mere discussion of race. So I've had classes where I'll say race, just the word race, yeah. and the faces will flush red because they get, and you can see the discomfort, oh, oh here we go, we're going to talk about this race. And so even just the mention of the conversation about race is so uncomfortable that I see in my students. And I'm wondering, in your community, when people talk about race, what was the, the response, if they ever did? Like, was there ever, and if you do now when you go home, is there ever any <laughs> response? Or how do people react? I'm, so, you know, I live in Howell, right? Oh. So we talk about being a whiteness scholar <laughs> yes. and living in Howell. Like, I live in the place where uh, whiteness exists greatly, right? right? Yeah. And so when people would ask me what I, what I research or what uh -huh. I do, it, I'm always very curious about the response. And I'm mm -hmm. like, well, I study race and racism, and particularly mm -hmm. I focus on whiteness and white supremacy. Mm -hmm. And the response I generally get is, oh, that's interesting. I had, uh, I won't say who it was, it was someone that I was had an appointment with and I think they were trying to argue with me about the premise of my work mm. and that they were it was more or less about um, a very bootstrap mentality yeah. you know communities band together because they're alike it was mm. very very interesting mm -hmm. um, and you know I, I will push on folks um, but this particular individual was in a unique space in my own <laughs> physicalness and I couldn't mm -hmm. really um, I didn't feel safe to have right. certain conversation. And so, but yeah, it, it, it's interesting when I, some folks react positively because I think they have also gone out and experienced the world beyond mm. um, their own grow, growing mm -hmm. up area. Mm -hmm. And some folks kind of just ignore it. And that's typically what I see happening. Yeah. Um, I had uh, a person who, um, was in my life pretty regularly for a while, and my, my wife is um, uh, biracial. She, she's half Chinese, half white, mm -hmm. and uh, she will we'll joke about that quite a bit. And this person's like, "Why does why does he always have to tell us that she's part Chinese?" Mm -hmm. And I wanted to say, "Because you're failing to recognize part of who she is, and uh, her identity. Okay. Right? It's it's right. that." I, and I started to 
piece that together is I think white folks just want people to be like them. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. We we don't see ourselves as white. Right. Only when it's convenient, we do. That's right. Unless you're like white power, white nationalist, mm-hmm. and then you definitely see yourself as white. But it's it's the I will see you in the way that I see you and mm-hmm. put you in a box. But I don't want you to notice that, tell me that, and then use it as a way to right. have conversation. Right. right. So I'm gonna. It's the power thing. Yeah. I'm gonna own the time when I can see you as black. Exactly. I'm gonna own the time when I can see you as Chinese. Mm-hmm. Don't tell me when I can do that. Exactly. And it's. I think it's a power thing. It is. So I see that in my community sometimes too. Play yeah. out in conversations about race. Yeah. It's so interesting that you had for both of these these things a very different response than someone like me would have, and it gets back to that original question of right. how does our own race yeah. shape the responses because I get a very violent reaction from white people when I even say, like I said, just the word race. Right. <laughs> or if I say, you know, America has a history of, you know, um, even inequality towards black people, people of color, and then my course evaluations would be she made it uncomfortable for white people. Yeah. And I know that the, the conversation was very limited to just those points. Um, and so just thinking about how we, how do we as people in this institution make people aware of the very different response. And also even how people of color might respond to you saying that you have a wife who's a person of color. So from a lot of our experiences, you know, we've had leaders who will trot out their person of color (laughs) uh, spouses or children and say, okay, this now validates me as your ally. And that's and and so this you'll get a very different response, I think, from people of color. And they're both responding, I think, to the racial dynamic of our of our society and what happens. But so it's interesting, again, to see in your own experience, just you're going to get a very different response in different in different yeah. settings. I mean, even the class people. that I came into, and we talked about. I I, I imagine we literally talked about the same thing, yeah. right? <laughs> and I said it, and the response was either I'm going to continue to ignore, right, or I'm going to get more engaged. Right. And yours response was, oh, when you God. said it was, she's forcing an agenda, <laughs> blah blah blah. It's all about her and right. her identity, and this is you know that's she's right. pushing whatever these things that's are. Right. And I think that that's just really fascinating, and I and, it, and I see it. There, there's sometimes when I get a, um, I have been told, now working here that I am. One person accused me of being a warrior trying to take up a cause, right? And so I think there's a point where it's I'm introducing it in myself as this is the this is what we're doing, and then you will see it and everything that we do because it's a part of how I operate, and then it becomes people start to be like, well, you're shoving. I've been also, one person has said, you're pushing it down our throats. Well, guess right? what? So that's, you're serious about it. Well, yeah. You're that's not a playing thing. a diversity game. But, but that's the thing. It's like, I'm not, it is It is critical that we do this all the time. That's right. And we can't just say we're about equity and justice when it's convenient. Mm-hmm. But that's the whole concept that we like to use in higher ed and in education and business and in the United States, where it's, it's, that, it's that concept of interest convergence, right? Mm-hmm. So when it's convenient and, it, and our interests converge, mm-hmm. right? So it's good for the system right. that we acknowledge these things and do these things, mm-hmm. then we bring it together, you right. know? Um, right. Derek Bell wrote amazingly about mm-hmm. that with Brown B. Board, mm-hmm. and uh, I think that that was really, really well done in kind of bringing forth this concept of interest convergence, the way yeah. that we look at when we talk about race and when we're allowed to That's bring right. it up as an issue. Mm-hmm. But it's always an issue. It That's is right. the central issue. That's right. Well, I mean, it's in the fabric of the institute. Like, you know, you talked about it, it's right behind you. I read another meme that goes going around on Facebook. It's in the air we breathe. And it had a picture of fish swimming mm-hmm. in, the, in the water was the white supremacy. And yeah. they, they couldn't see it because it's the air you breathe. It's the water. It's the, you're kind of immersed in it. And the institutions that we're in, it is almost 
by design the way that the institutions are structured to be white supremacist. And so that interest convergence um, only converges when it allows us to mask that those other elements of yeah. the white supremacy of the institution. But when you come in and say, no, 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 we're going to go line by line, step by step through the place, and that's a very threatening kind of thing. Like, oh, you're really serious, and you actually might threaten the stability of the institution as it is. And so it's like the other ally that we talked about who, yeah. you know, got and, and that was a shock to me, that blowback that she got, because, you know, in, in our community we say, if they'll do that to a white person, what will they do to me? Right. Right? And that's what happened to her. Um, but it's because it was just the very fact that she was doing it mm-hmm. was so threatening to the structure of the place that they had to silence that person. I have to call myself out for a mm-hmm. second because my fragility is getting a little oh. caught up. And I'm <laughs> noticing that Dr. P is taking lots of notes and I'm like, why guy making comments that he doesn't understand about anything? We got you sweating over there. We didn't mean to have you sweating, Tom. But we told you this is going to be real. We said we're going to be real in these conversations. And this is a space of love. I'm just teasing. This is a space of love. But yeah, I saw she was taking notes. I'm like, I am taking notes. Um, And then I had to question my own. I'm like, are you you noticing this because your fragility is happening and all this stuff is happening? We're going to take a quick break. We'll be back in just a moment. We talked today about Juneteenth, so we wanted to take a second to tell you a bit more about what it is. As you may already know, Abraham Lincoln signed an executive order called the Emancipation Proclamation, which took effect on January 1, 1863. This order ended slavery. However, slaves in Texas did not receive word that they had been freed until more than two years later, when on June 19, 1865, hence Juneteenth, Union Major General Gordon Granger spread word to Galveston, Texas, of the Emancipation Proclamation. Today, Juneteenth is one of the oldest celebrations of the end of slavery in the United States, and it's celebrated with parades and festivals all across the country. I, th- I think this actually is a good pivot point to kind of start talking about and and um, the comments yesterday right. uh, from Mitch McConnell. I, I don't know if you had a chance to read that. Yeah, I that. listened to his video clip and I oh, you did. I wanted to smash all kinds of things. And that's again my response when I hear this kind of stance. I'm learning how to <laughs> figure out what that response was doing. So there's a, a house bill. It's House Bill 40, mm-hmm. which is named um, odd, uh, interesting after the 40 acres and a mule. Mm-hmm. I think that's why it's called House Bill 40. Wow. And uh, about reparations, or at least forming a commission. Uh, for reparations. And so uh, when asked about it yesterday, Mitch McConnell said, I don't think reparations for something that happened 150 years ago for whom none of us currently living are responsible is a good idea. He then continued, we've tried to deal with our original sin of slavery by fighting a civil war, passing landmark civil civil rights legislation. We elected an African-American president. Um, Yes. So that was, if I could just (laughs) encapsulize, like, where white America is and how they think about yeah. their own connection to racism, mm-hmm. white supremacy, that is it in a statement. It's absolutely right? just distilled, perfectly crystallized version of what we see. And so for that to come out yeah. on Juneteenth and him have that comment, I think is even more kind of this lack of understanding of both our historical ingrained nature of white supremacy in the way we exist, but also in the way it, it, it has permeated through to all aspects of society. That's right. That's right. So, 
and, and he's not again like it's white supremacy is the air we breathe you right. know and he's breathing the air but also in in the policies that his party makes and the ways that he governs is reproducing those systems of inequality and so for him to wipe his hands of it that's always the astonishing point for me as a scholar as an activist as a person trying to live in this world and this is a question I kind of had for you um, you know, say Mitch McConnell is a relative or a friend that you know in your community. How do we... He is my... I mean, like, <laughs> like I see this in my relatives, right? right. And so, um, yeah. How do we reach them, though? And and, it is, and, and I, I had this question. I was having this conversation yesterday with Suzanne Seelich. She's another person that gave me some questions, and this is the question she asked. Um, you know, how do we reach him? And I kind of asked her back, Is he, do we bother with him? You know, and, and I'm, I'm in this place of, do I... How do I come to a place where we can be in a place of understanding with white people who have these ideas? And is it, you know, is it damaging to my spirit to have to fight that fight with them? And, and, and how do we move someone like that forward? Yesterday I was reading Twitter, because Twitter's where I get all my information lately. Uh, and uh, Dr. Cooper, Brittany Cooper, said something about um, individual actions don't make up for breaking down the system. Something like that. I'm terribly right. paraphrasing it, but mm -hmm. it goes along with this concept that you and I talked about, Dr. P, uh, and, and the thing that you and I want to collaborate on is this this concept of pushing against the ocean, mm -hmm. right? So as an individual, you, when you work against racism, when you work against white supremacy, mm -hmm. you do this work against the ocean. And, and are you really doing anything on these individual right. acts? So is me being nice to somebody like really making a difference like is that I mean yeah it's a good human but like can I count that right. you know, so white, white folks we really like to count things that's can right. I count that as me right. being an activist or being right. someone that's anti-racist and, and, the, and the response is no uh, you have to do the work in the system we right. have to do the work to, to, to I, I like the term disruption um, some folks like to dismantle. I think you have to disrupt and dismantle, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. But I think I think that that's where it comes from. So to answer your question about Mitch McConnell, like he is the system. That's right. So my work with Mitch McConnell is to remove him out of that because yeah. his voice is upholding that. Now the system will exist when he's gone. Right. The hope is is that we can get other folks in there at a larger mm. um, that have a larger capacity to be able to dismantle the things that we have done. Now, I think that there are realists out there that would agree, and I, and I tend to fall in this category. I don't think this will happen in my lifetime. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, but I think that the progress can start, mm -hmm. and you can continue to kind of break that down. Yeah. But to completely disrupt and dismantle, I think, is, is yeah. challenging. I think some of the, what I started to realize in doing my own research with the seven participants that were in my study is that they all were trying to do things as individuals. That's right. And they were so ineffective, um, and and not just ineffective, but it was so inconsistent because they're white people. They have an investment in white supremacy, knowing it or not That's knowing right. it. They have an investment in whiteness that interrupting the status quo is difficult for them. And right. so unless they're doing the work at the systems level, mm -hmm. they they one didn't see any change but also didn't see the impact they wanted to see that's right. but we operate often so much on the individual that's right and the other piece that i'll throw out there too is that i think we do a disservice when we don't talk about structure and system that's so right. i don't think individuals know enough about systemic um interaction systemic policies and systemic practices some right. systemic cultures to be able to identify them that's and right. i and i think 
a lot of times, and again, this comes with who owns knowledge and who is able to have that space to say they, they mm-hmm. see it, it comes from minoritized populations right. that say the system is doing X, That's right. but they're often not given the space or given the credibility to be heard. That's right. Because it, it's, you yeah. Know, yeah. Well, it's so powerful that you're saying that because it's not just white people who are in that bind. You know, in the many institutional spaces I've been at, to encounter people of color who are heading initiatives that are just outright white supremacists because they fundamentally believe this is how we're supposed to do business. And they themselves can't see the big system and how right. their how their work fits into that system. They just know it as, you know, this is what my work is supposed to be and I'm supposed to do my job well and this is how we do things here and, and, and not recognizing even for themselves that they're playing into a system that's also rewarding them. Like the further that they get promoted up, they get more and more control, but that control is not then shifted towards dismantling the system. It's shifted towards maintaining the system. And I guess that question becomes, you know, does, is Barack Obama a good example of that? You know, it's, he's a person who's clearly committed to social justice, but yet within the system that he's moving up and then becoming the chief executive of, we're not necessarily seeing, even in his work, a radical dismantling of that system. Where, and, and the way that he had to play the game, right? in some ways, you know, he would say, I have to play the game in this way. And maybe what we're looking for now is the next set of leaders, black or white, who are going to maybe not play the game. <laughs> I don't know. But, but it's a, I hear it as a kind of um, call to action for white people who are thinking about it on an individualistic level, because I meet so many white people who say, well, I'm a good person, you know, and I donate my money to all these charitable organizations, mm-hmm. and I volunteer, and I, I go to my church. Lots of, lots of good white people. <laughs> lots there. of good white people, because they're doing it at this individual, right. interpersonal level, but then they'll go and they'll vote for the law that keeps us out of the school system, or they'll vote for whatever person who's going to deport half of our neighbors, right? And so not recognizing that they themselves are playing into the system that's causing these things. Let's even not say that. Let's say they even vote for these things to not happen, Mm -hmm. or they vote for Mm -hmm. the people that won't do these, but they don't do anything beyond it to stop it, or they don't do anything to raise their voice to make it heard, or they don't add, or they don't credit, or they challenge, excuse me, Mm -hmm. the folks that are doing these things. And that's, it's... It's the lack of action that yeah. happens that it exactly. makes them accountable. Exactly. And I, and I think we do a disservice when we do diversity training with white folks. And I'll mm-hmm. just call it diversity training because that's what it's been. Mm-hmm. Is that we focus so much on the individual right. frame for so long and we right. don't get to the group and the community right. frame. That's an excellent point. I mean, that's basically the conversation I was having with Suzanne Selig. Hopefully she'll be a guest of ours um, talking about her cultural competence class and about how the class is about that inter- individual level. Like right. self you got to start somewhere. Yeah, you got to start somewhere, but then how do we get to that next level, like you say, of now that you've done that self-awareness, how do you move out into the world to make the yeah. change? And it's going to be at the system level. You've taken that self-awareness and then... Um, take the next step, right? And so, yeah. we got to write a paper on this. Yeah, lots of papers come out. We make just a po- do podcasts make a podcast on, on this. I think so, yeah. We publish ourselves, you know. Right, right. Change the dynamic of who owns knowledge. I think that's a right. brilliant way of doing it, right? Because yeah. in the academic space, if you can't write papers, your voice is not heard. But in right. the podcast, hey. Well, and you think about who has access to academic journals, right? right? And generally it's written in a certain frame, in a certain context, and there's a board that generally gets to determine whether or not your writing is credible or not credible, and you've cited enough sources, and you, you know, and if, you know, one of the things that I really appreciate, I have some colleagues or some 
folks that were faculty of mine that really really work on doing is making sure that they are intentional about who they cite. That's right. That's and making right. sure that their voices are being heard in, their, in the right. work that they do. And, yeah. you know, I intentionally pulled individuals, even though their research would have probably strengthened my argument in, mm-hmm. in my literature, mm-hmm. um, pulled them out because I thought, one, I don't think they were honest in the way that they approached the work. I think mm-hmm. that they were self-serving and trying to get themselves in the center of the discussion, right. even though that they were doing work on folks of color, mm-hmm. research on folks of mm-hmm. color and the voices of folks of color. But also, um, I wanted to make sure that the voices and the individuals that I was citing and, and that had credibility, that were in my work, um, were true yeah. to the cause, right. if that makes any sense. Oh, it makes a lot of sense. I mean, that's the place that I'm at. I've had a lot of black um, mentors and colleagues who have actually said, and of course they had to wait till they got tenure to be able to sure. do this, but they said, you know, I'm tenured now. I'm not going to write another piece of writing. I'm not going to do another piece of research that my people can't read, that they can't access, and it's not for my people. So this whole industry of journals and books that are on library shelves, I'm not interested in that. Yeah. You know, and so that's something where I'm at thinking about, you know, who I cite, where I publish, what I'm writing, and even the kind of care that I take for who I'm talking to. So if I'm inter- interviewing people in Flint, um, you know, Flint becomes a place where we just come and research it to death and we take from it. But how do we make sure that our work is giving back and trying to be mindful of that and changing that dynamic? So right. it's, it's something for all of us, like a call to action for all of us as academics to think about. Well, maybe that's a good challenge for you and I as we continue this too, is if we think about this from a perspective of both lifting and raising voices mm-hmm. and providing space and avenue for voices that aren't normally heard in academic spaces. That's right. Um, while also still having a larger reach Mm-hmm. to the community that you and I want to impact. So yeah. folks that are not just academics, even though I can right. operate yeah. in that framework because it's, yeah. one, it's part of my own mm-hmm. colonization to, to right. do that. But also, I think it makes more sense for us to kind of continue that work. Yeah, so. no, this is exciting. Yeah, yeah. So I think uh, we're in the space to kind of wrap it up, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, well, just thank you all for kind of listening to us. Uh, I think we did pretty good with the rambling. I don't think we rambled too much, right? Yeah, I think it was, I think it was good. I think it was good <laughs> we're, rambling. We're a good focus, good focus yeah, conversation. Not that I like grades because grades are colonized uh, <laughs> and supported in whiteness, but I give us like a B, right. yeah, you know, a, a good effort for the first time good. going. I like to be real about yeah. it. No, I yeah. thought it was good. I, I really enjoyed I'm really excited to have you here. Um, so we're our hope is to have episodes every two to three weeks moving forward. Um, we'll have guests on sometimes. Sometimes we'll have topics in the news, topics that we kind of come across, um, and just keep it open, and um, you'll hear a lot from uh, our people here in Flint that we work with and that we that we kind of uh, have been exposed to, and if anyone is interested in uh, coming on the show, you can contact either Eric or myself, but I'd like to introduce um, Dr. Joyce Peart, who's been sitting and listening for this whole time. <laughs> our live um, studio audience. Our live studio audience of one today, uh, who we hope to maybe has as, as our next guest, yeah. our first our first guest as a yeah. our new adventure. Dr. Peart, do you have anything you want to say or want to introduce yourself? Um, hey, listening <laughs> audience, it's a pleasure being here. I I thoroughly enjoyed this conversation, and uh, I think that this this way of speaking to uh, the public is amazing. So mm-hmm. I'm I'm excited about it. Dr. P is an is a uh, she is uh, an expert in um, mindfulness and mathematics, um, so she's superhuman. 
um, and all things. So I, we're pretty excited to talk to her about both of those things and, and the work that she does here in the community uh, and her longstanding kind of push against the system. I think she's one person that I know uh, personally that has really tried to challenge the system and has um, also been on the receiving end of some probably negative consequences of that along the way. So right. we're excited to hear your story yes. soon. Yeah. And I'd be excited to share it. Um. Well, that's all we have for our show today. Thanks again um, for joining us and coming back after nine months off. Uh, we'll see you in a few weeks. If you're looking for us, we're on Twitter at Disrupt Whiteness. It's one S at the end of whiteness. Or you can look us up on whitenessinamerica.com. All of our podcasts are there. Uh, you can find us on iTunes, uh, Google Play, or Spotify. Uh, until next time. Yeah.